Just a note before we begin this episode, we recorded on Wednesday afternoon, but there have been developments since. The EU and the UK have issued a joint statement in which they have said, we are all facing the same pandemic and the third wave makes cooperation between the EU and UK even more important. We have been discussing what more we can do to ensure a reciprocally beneficial relationship between the UK and EU on COVID-19. Given our interdependencies, we are working on specific steps we can take in the short, medium and long term to create a win-win situation and expand vaccine supply for all our citizens. In the end, openness and global cooperation of all countries will be key to finally overcoming this pandemic and ensure better preparation for meeting future challenges. We will continue our discussions. So there seems to be a pullback from the brink there, but this episode will give you all of the background as to why that statement had to be issued and what possible problems could still be in our futures. Enjoy. Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, why is there talk of an EU-UK vaccine war? Vaccine war is a bit dramatic, isn't it? Honestly, I rolled my eyes a little when I first saw it used on the front page of a newspaper. Calm down, lads, I thought. But actually, the coarsening rhetoric, the threats, the genuine rival vibes between the pair is all very history book precursor to trade wars, cold wars, or just war wars. And there has been a bit of a showdown, according to those same newspaper headlines this week, because of the vaccines that both sides want. The European Commission has announced it will use EU powers to block COVID-19 vaccine exports. The move is to avoid delays in deliveries from vaccine makers to its member states. Not just AstraZeneca, but that company has seen a shipment of vaccines bound for Australia kept in Italy recently. The mechanism will be deployed if companies are deemed by the EU to not be complying with their quarterly delivery targets set out in their contracts. That's obviously something we're really familiar with in Ireland, particularly with AstraZeneca. So how did we get here to the point of talking about vaccine wars? Well, for the EU and the UK aspects, we obviously need a Brexit expert here to fully answer those questions. So Grani Nia joins us, as well as vaccine expert Michelle Hennessy, so we can sort out what's going on, who's at fault, if anyone, and figure out what's going to happen next. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi, Sinead. Grania, is this just a horrible merger between Brexit and a vaccine rollout? I would say that... Brexit is fanning the flames of the, of the problem rather than actually being the fuel to, to the to the fire. And um, there's a lot of different things at play here. So you have the messy partnerships between public and private in the middle of a global crisis. You have the fractured global response to the pandemic. You know, if there was a more collaborative ap- approach to giving people vaccines across the world, we'd be less concerned about exactly how many vaccines there are in an AstraZeneca plant in in the Netherlands, uh, for example. And also vaccine nationalism has been a much bigger topic than maybe people thought it would be in a global crisis. But Brexit's definitely a a tint uh, to all of that. You know, an EU official has said that it's kind of less about Brexit than it is about problems with AstraZeneca. But the EU is currently suing the UK the UK are calling the AstraZeneca vaccine the British vaccine. So there is this kind of undertone of the UK wanting to prove how how more effective it is outside the EU and the EU trying to show that working together as a block, as a collective, is the best way to approach big crises like climate, climate change and the COVID pandemic. It's interesting, though, because if 
the UK has had stayed within the EU, if they were an EU member state, they could have decided to go it alone and do what they're doing now. It kind of hints that a lot of people have said if they were member states, they would have probably gone it alone and got their own vaccines without being a part of the EU kind of drive to source them. And we would have seen this problem happen anyway. But it is kind of a hint to kind of a different approach maybe between the EU and the UK to solving problems or looking after their own citizens. Can you just remind our listeners why the EU is suing the UK? So the EU is taking legal action against the UK over its decision to unilaterally extend grace periods that relate to checks going on things being sent from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. Now, that's a problem because as part of the withdrawal agreement, they're meant to come to a decision on that together. The grace periods are about checks needed on goods like supermarket products, potted plants, custom checks on parcels being sent from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. And during grace periods, all those aren't required. Uh, So it's not about vaccines, but decision to unilaterally extend grace periods was taken in response to the EU uh, suggesting that Article 16 will be triggered, which obviously is in relation to uh, the vaccine export route that we're talking about now. And we have another podcast on that, so you can listen back if you're still a little bit confused. But going back to the differences between the British approach and the EU approach, we've heard uh, reports this week of Boris Johnson talking about capitalism and greed and trying to roll back on some of those things that he has been reported to have said. But is this an internal EU problem? Does this show some of the the problems within the bureaucracy there that they didn't have the same kind of impetus as the British government did to, to get vaccines uh, into member states? I think it does. I think it shows, you know, the UK and the US in particular are really good at putting their own citizens first and looking after their country first. And the EU loves rules and standards and dotting I's and crossing T's and their approach to almost everything. And we heard that a lot during the Brexit campaign and, and the aftermath of it. That frustrated the the UK how slow processes were. If you actually look, if you take one example, so for example, the UK funding the AstraZeneca vaccine, it gave them sixty five million pounds to uh, produce the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. They um, attached a clause to that or a condition to that that the UK would be supplied first by any vaccine that was produced, and. If you look at the ger- part funded by the German uh, government, Pfizer-BioNTech, they didn't as- receive that same assurance. So the, the UK kind of seemed to foresee this clawing for vaccines that would happen at some stage in the pandemic very early on that the EU just either it didn't see or it didn't believe would be a big issue. They might have thought there would be more of a global uh, process to everything. Michelle, this we've talked a lot about this in terms of AstraZeneca because we all know the problems that they've had with their delivery. But is this going to be an issue for all manufacturers? Because if the EU is going to bring in a rule, it's not going to be just about one company. It's going to be about all of them. Yeah, that's right. So the focus so far has been mainly on the AstraZeneca vaccine. And, you know, this is the vaccine that has allowed the government in the UK uh, to to operate in a kind of a self-sufficient way up until this point. Uh, It has been using so far the Pfizer and AstraZeneca vaccine. And the AstraZeneca vaccine, that's also the manufacturer that has let down the 
European Commission the most. I mean, we've seen it ourselves with the constant changes to deliveries. But COVID vaccines are being manufactured all over Europe. Uh, It's not only going to be an issue with this one vaccine. So, for example, the Pfizer vaccine, which is being shipped from the Belgium site, this could be blocked uh, using this new mechanism. And this could be a massive issue for the UK. Now, the UK decided to delay its second doses of this vaccine in the early days, uh, which was not necessarily what was recommended by the manufacturer. Instead of giving the the two doses on that two dose schedule, they decided to give the first dose to as many people as possible and, you know, sort of roll it out in that way. So this is all well and good if you're certain, you know, you're going to get the second doses when you need them and in the amount you need to give everyone the second dose. But if the EU blocks exports, Pfizer is not going to be able to deliver those second doses. And this vaccine isn't being manufactured in the UK. So that's going to be a big problem. Now, it's worth noting with this, one of the key components of this vaccine is being manufactured in the UK. So, you know, it's possible that if the commission was to say, well, you can't have the vaccine from Belgium, the UK is going to say, well, you can't have the components to manufacture it. So that there could be, you know, this sort of blockade on both sides. Uh, if we move on to some of the other vaccines, the Moderna vaccine is due to start arriving in the UK next month. Again, this is not being manufactured. There is being manufactured in the EU, so that could be blocked. We know the Johnson Johnson vaccine will be produced in European countries like Germany and France. The UK has ordered 30 million doses. That jab also isn't being manufactured there. CureVac has sites in Germany and the pharma company Novartis has partnered with CureVac. So its site in Austria will be used for this vaccine. This company has also accepted funding from the UK to help develop and manufacture the products in the UK. So they may be able to cover themselves there with that one, but this is going to be further down the line. Are there any projections of what type of impact an export ban from the EU to the UK could have on the UK's rollout. So obviously you've talked about the, the second Pfizer dose there, but is there anything else that we know in terms of numbers that could stop the massive uh, headway they're making there? Yeah, I mean, we know that there was a recent analysis published in The Guardian, and this suggests the UK's vaccine programme would face a two-month delay if there was an EU export ban. Now, this would significantly impact on the government's ambitious plan to reopen the economy this summer. This is something we've covered in this podcast. I mean, they were talking about sort of large events, concerts uh, by June. And interestingly, this analysis also points out that holding on to these doses due to go to the UK wouldn't actually give the EU member states vaccine programmes a significant boost. The number of doses within the block would speed the full vaccination of every adult in the EU by just over a week. Now, listeners might think, you know, well, actually, we take that week because, you know, it brings us a week closer to returning to some sort of normality. But but a week in terms of how big this problem has blown up to be uh, is not actually that significant. Yeah, so Grania, that kind of goes back to the, the EU then. What's the exact aim of this if it's not to massively speed up the rollout in its member states? It's kind of um, a point of principle and it's also sort of fighting fire with fire. So normally, so basically what's happening here is AstraZeneca has a contract with the EU and it has a contract with the UK and the two of them kind of clash. AstraZeneca is saying, well, in the EU and we said we'd make our best efforts to supply a certain amount of vaccines by a certain amount of time or by a certain time. And that's our interpretation. Our best efforts is we're going to prioritise the UK and we're going to give the EU vaccines, uh, the vaccines we promised at a later date, and that's our interpretation of best efforts. The EU ag- disagrees with that. They say the UK plants producing AstraZeneca vaccines are included in our contract, so they should be supplying us vaccines. 
normally that that would be hashed out in the courts where the two would argue the legalities of those contracts but we don't have the time to do that that's not going to make a difference to the eu's vaccine rollout so the eu is like right we'll fight fire with fire then we'll look at all the legal arsenal we have and see if we can keep as many vaccines as we can that might loosen up the astrazeneca plants um in the uk it might be a show of strength, I suppose, of, of the UK uh, vaccine rollout. But it's kind of uh, the one of the only things the EU can do now in response to what they are saying is, is AstraZeneca's kind of repeated failures to deliver on a contract that they made with the EU. Michelle, are there massive ships of vaccines leaving the EU and where are they going? Right. So uh, there, there was a, a report by Bloomberg recently and um, they ha- had an EU document which stated the EU has exported 41.6 million doses of vaccines to other countries. Now, the EU has received by far the largest proportion of that, around 10 million. The majority of those were Pfizer jabs. It doesn't appear that there have been any vaccine exports from the UK to the EU, but it may be the case that components of the vaccine, like we talked about earlier, have been exported from the UK to the EU. Uh, There are other countries, though, it's not just the UK who've received vaccines from the EU. Canada, Japan, Mexico, Saudi Arabia, Turkey and Singapore, they're also also, uh, receiving vaccines from the EU. And we have actually seen shipments being blocked. AstraZeneca had a shipment out of Italy that was due to go to Australia, stopped. Can you just explain what happened and what the reaction has been and what ended up happening to those doses? So this was a shipment of more than 250,000 doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine. And the Italian government said that blocking it wasn't a hostile act towards Australia, but it was due to the shortage in in the EU and what it termed unacceptable delivery delays from AstraZeneca. So under this new mechanism that had been introduced, if a company wanted to export doses out of the EU, it would need to apply to the national government. So in this situation, it was Italy. Uh, and the, the country, that's the country that the, the manufacturing site is in. Uh, so the Italian government said, no, you know, the EU needs them more. Uh, there is an option now for, for the country that was due to receive the shipment to ask the commission to review this decision. And the Australian government did do this. But the vaccine is being manufactured in Australia also. And the first doses, some 800,000 were approved for release just this week. So this may not be such a big problem for Australia moving forward. That's one flashpoint from the last few weeks. But Grania, a lot of this centres around just one plant. Um, Can you tell us about that plant and why it has become the centre of this argument? So there's a Halix plant in the Netherlands that produces vaccines for the EU primarily. Um, They're made in a plant in the Netherlands and then they're sent to Italy to be packaged and then exported to wherever they might be going to. The EU in recent days has become increasingly concerned that there are vaccines being stockpiled in the Dutch plant, the Halix plant, and that they might be exported to the UK, which is a problem because there are two UK plants making AstraZeneca vaccines that have sent none to the EU. So there's been a lot of talk about how many vaccines are in this Halix plant, where exactly are they going to, and what powers the EU have to keep them within the EU if that's what they decide to do. It came out this week that there are 29 million doses of AstraZeneca vaccines in that plant. Uh, They've been sent to a plant in Italy and AstraZeneca, there was so much focus on where these vaccines came from, where are they going, that AstraZeneca sent a statement out to say, this is not unusual. We're not stockpiling these vaccines. This is part of the, the, the production of vaccines. 
uh, they said that around half are going to uh, the COVAX program, which is a program that rich countries set up to make sure that poorer countries get a good dose of vaccines. And the other half are going to Europe. Now, they didn't say exclude the UK from Europe. Obviously, that's not the EU. Uh, they said that some of it's go, um, being distributed in the last week of March to Europe and the rest is going at the start of April. That's all we know. But it was an attempt to kind of dispel this idea that AstraZeneca vaccines are being hidden from the EU, even though they're being created within the EU, and also to kind of take the heat out of this diplomatic row that seems like it's on the brink of exploding but it just shows just how tense things are at the moment between AstraZeneca the EU but also the EU and the UK. Yeah, that, which is why we're talking about trade wars and uh, vaccine wars. Ursula von der Leyen did mention in a similar vein uh, using powers that the EU used during the 1970s oil crisis. What is she referring to there? Yeah, this is um, uh, something that was used in the treaty, a specific clause, a kind of um nuclear option, I suppose, to seize intellectual properties, factories by the EU at the time in order to deal with a crisis. Um, and I suppose uh, Ursula von der Leyen is kind of justifying the actions over AstraZeneca by saying, well, this did happen before. I think it's kind of um, a response to some of the comments from the UK that said this is not an action we would expect to see from a diplomatic nation, you know, hinting that it's kind of like uh, an isolated state move that you'd see from a kind of a di dictatorship, maybe. Um, and Ursula von der Leyen's response was, well, we have done this before. It is still a very dramatic action. And we've spoken about why, um, because this is meant to be a collaborative um, working all, we're all working together. There's global supply chains producing vaccines to, to produce, to kind of fight the pandemic. Um, but it has been done before. Is there a road back for UK-EU relations or is this kind of damaging it for our lifetime? I think this is just one battle in a long war that has continued between the UK and the EU, even when they were an EU member state. To be honest, it seems to be more of an issue with AstraZeneca than particularly between the UK and the EU. That is kind of hard sometimes when you look at the UK tabloids and their, you know, delight at the, this kind of diplomatic situation. The, the problem, I suppose, is that there aren't the diplomatic ties that would have been there before the mutual respect between the two sides um, about their different uh, viewpoints. And I, I think as well, another issue is that they're all both trying to justify their existence and their and their um, and their kind of uh, way of of looking after their citizens. I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon. So I do think we are going to see this kind of tit for tat way of the UK and the EU dealing with one another, despite the fact that they have to talk to one another regularly about what to do in Northern Ireland and what trading arrangements should be there. But I don't think this is the, 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 first, the last battle we'll see between the two of them. It's an ongoing existential crisis. You mentioned Ireland's position in Brexit. We were kind of caught in the middle. What is Ireland's position on all of this in terms of vaccine wars and, and trade rules? Taoiseach Micheál Martin was quite strong on Ireland's position that he thinks it shouldn't happen, that this export ban should not happen, and that he told European Council President Charles Michel directly that it would be a retrograde step and the EU shouldn't go in this direction. And he gave a very uh, stark example of 
what how this could spiral out of control. So Pfizer has 280 materials or ingredients, if you want, uh, that make it up. And they come from 86 suppliers in 19 different countries. And if you if the EU stops uh, AstraZeneca vaccines being sent to the UK, the UK could say, right, well, we're going to stop uh, ingredients being sent to the to the EU as a, as a kind of uh, tit for tat and the whole thing falls apart. Taoiseach Michal Martin said that Moderna told him that they are quite concerned about this happening. And so he doesn't think we should go down that route at all because it's just going to, as bad as things are at the moment, it's only going to make things worse. The other side of this is you can understand why the you know the EU as a as a twenty seven nations are kind of split on what to do. That's Ireland's position, but that's just one of of twenty seven opinions, because they're all coming under pressure from the amount of cases and deaths there are uh, across the EU at the moment. You know it, we're on the brink of another wave of COVID nineteen. The vaccine rollout is important clinically to the EU as well as you know diplomatically and politically and all the rest of it. So. Um, as I think it says a lot that as fraught as things are at the moment, that Ireland's position is we can't go down this route. Yeah, Michelle, when you think about that, though, like the actual term pandemic means global. So there are people, there are healthcare workers across the world who won't have a hope of getting near a vaccine in the coming weeks. So is this kind of all pointless vaccine nationalism or vaccine protectionism? in a in the face of what is actually a global problem that needs a global solution. Yeah, I mean, I think pe- people are attaching, you know, Brexit to this situation as in, you know, the EU just wants to punish the UK, but it, it's a lot more than that. Countries all o- over the world are scrambling now for vaccine doses, and the virus is still circulating on a wide scale. I mean, a number of European countries are now seeing signs of new waves, harsher restrictions in place yet again. And I think when we talk about this rowing between first world nations, it can be overlooked that developing countries are so far behind us in terms of vaccinating their citizens number of months ago when this export ban was first being discussed, Minister for Foreign Affairs Simon Coveney acknowledged that this kind of bickering must look really bad from outside the developing world. He said it was unfortunate that developing countries have to look at wealthy parts of the world arguing over who gets the vaccine first and supply chains while they're desperately trying to get access to small quantities of vaccines for their own populations. Now, the World Health Organization has repeatedly chastised wealthy countries, accusing them of hogging COVID-19 vaccines while the developing countries suffer. And the WHO has also pointed out that aside from this obvious moral failure, leaving some of the most vulnerable people in the world at risk is a short-sighted strategy and it'll ultimately prolong the pandemic. I mean, we, we don't just need at least 80% of our own country or the EU to be vaccinated and then we're all grand. They've said it's a global situation with vaccine equity and that's the only real solution to this pandemic. We've also heard from uh, the charity Oxfam. I mean, they've pointed out that nearly 70 poor countries will only be able to vaccinate one in 10 people against COVID-19 this year unless urgent action is taken to ensure enough doses are produced and that what is produced is shared around. Now, there have been calls for intellectual property rules to be waived. So we're talking about patents here uh, to allow more production of COVID-19 vaccines for poorer nations. If those rules were relaxed or temporarily waived in relation to just the COVID vaccines, this would allow generic or other manufacturers to make them. The argument made against that is that if you take away the intellectual property rights from the companies, the incentive in the future to develop vaccines is gone. And this is an opinion that's held by Microsoft's Bill Gates, even though he has been 
a very strong force in the drive to get vaccines to developing countries. On the other side of that, it's clear how this would go a long way in helping poorer countries to get going with their vaccination programs. Even in developed and wealthy countries, we are seeing the impact of having just a small number of companies with a limited number of manufacturing sites producing vaccines. And that's obviously magnified tenfold for developing countries. Yeah, it is really the the real conversation, isn't it? Um, but again, it's hard to chastise people for wanting their own grandmother, their own parents themselves vaccinated so you can get on with, with your own life so you can see both sides of it. So on that, we'll just talk briefly about Ireland's own vaccine rollout and where we compare to, to other European countries and the rest of the world. Um, if there was an accurate table, where would we be on it? So just this week uh, here in Ireland, we passed the 10% of the population mark. So that's 10% of the population has received one dose. When you compare it to other countries uh, like Israel, we're not looking great. So 58% have received a vaccine, 52% are fully vaccinated. But remember, Israel has a deal with Pfizer to provide extremely detailed data to the company, like a sort of real world trial. And that's been really valuable um, for not just Israel and for Pfizer, but for other countries who are rolling out the vaccine. We know it's very effective now. Uh, And for Israel, that has meant a large and reliable supply of vaccine from that company. The UK, we know, is doing quite well. Uh, They've given a a vaccine to about 42% of the population, though just over 3% are fully vaccinated. The US is doing well. Uh, 25% of the population have received a vaccine. 14% are fully vaccinated. On the other end of that scale, we have countries like Kenya uh, with less than 0.1% of the population vaccinated. Uganda has administered just 23,500. Again, 0.1% of the population. Malawi is on a similar level. So I mean, you see the trend there with that. And this is where uh, vaccine equity comes in. In terms of Europe, Malta is doing very well. 21% have received a vaccine. In Hungary, 17% have got a jab. Denmark had been hailed in the early days as one of the golden children of Europe, but actually they're just at 11% now. So if we're comparing ourselves to Denmark, we're not doing too shabby uh, in terms of the European scale. Austria is also at the top there. They're also at 11%. So, uh, I mean, the 21% and 17% in Malta and Hungary, you know, we've a bit of catching up to do there. But then in terms of, you know, as you come further down through that scale, uh, you know, we're sort of middling uh, and we're not doing as bad as maybe we think we are. What's happening in Malta and Hungary that has allowed them to, to do so well? Yeah, I mean, I took a look at this recently. So with Malta, it's sort of hard to really nail down exactly why their government ordered basically all of the vaccines that they were going to be entitled to under the EU deal. But so did we for the record. Uh, So if that's the reason, then, you know, we should be on that same sort of scale. Their health minister has said they'd be nowhere near where they are now if they'd had to compete as an individual in a very small country for vaccines. So the government there seems to put a lot of the success down to being part of this wider EU deal that has been so criticised recently. Hungary's reason for success is more obvious. They're using two additional vaccines. Uh, That's the Chinese Sinopharm and the Russian Sputnik V jabs. And Hungary is the only EU country to use both of those. Neither of these vaccines are approved by the European Medicines Agency, though the EMA has begun a rolling review of the Sputnik V vaccine. So that one is a possibility for the rest of the EU. Uh, It's just not clear when. Uh, And uh, with Hungary, it follows that if you have access to more vaccines, you'll be able to vaccinate more of your citizens. So, I mean, that's why they're up there where they are. In the early part of the year, Denmark, like I said, was a leader. And officials decided to delay the second dose of the Pfizer vaccine that was the approach taken by the UK as well. And that was to give as many people as possible a first dose. They also have a strong universal healthcare system and a centralised national register. So each 
resident has a, a national identification number which links them to all government services. And this centralised system has allowed officials to easily categorise people into the different priority groups. Now, we obviously had a much more complicated process in terms of identifying priority groups because we don't have this kind of centralised database. I mean, we've spoken about this before. We, we don't have uh, a list and, and people categorised into the, the various um, high-risk conditions they have. And this is why a lot of this work now is being done by hospital groups, uh, by GPs. Uh, but like I said, we have actually caught up with Denmark now. Um, so, I mean, officials are expecting us to have a, a better second quarter of the year in terms of vaccine supplies. Much of this will be down to, you know, how much the, the companies are actually able to deliver, whether they can deliver what they told us they were going to. So this is, a, again, a watch this space situation. And I think that shows, Michelle, one of my long held opinions that a lot of the world's problems can be solved with really boring solutions, like things like proper databases and good procurement. Um, but you've unpacked so much there for us. So thanks so much, Grania and Michelle, for coming in, explaining everything that's going on with the UK, the EU, and how maybe it doesn't matter in the global sense of uh, this pandemic. So thanks a million for coming on to The Explainer today. Thanks, Sinead. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Gronia and Michelle for their work on this episode. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Aoife Barry and Nikki Ryan. If you want to support the podcast, there's a few things you can do. Head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber to the journal. You can also leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. A good one, please, because it's a great way to make sure other people will listen and love it too. Thank you very much for listening and catch you next time.